Heavenly Father. It's just an extraordinary portion of Scripture, isn't it, Lord, that you have inspired. And Father, we thank you that the biblical church was able to sing this word and we are able to hear this word this evening. Pray, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit's presence that we would see Jesus, rely on Jesus, depend on Jesus. Forgive me for my sins, Lord, and help me, Lord God, to be enthralled to this text. And us all, Lord God, in our sharing of, your, of the word and sharing around your table, Lord God, to know a great sense of your blessing as we pray for your son's glory. Amen. Um, Last night we looked at the whole idea of what it is to live faithfully in times of exile and we identified some of the concerns that we had and uh, we said that we lived in really confusing times and we looked at some of the reasons why our days are confused. Uh, and then we looked at uh, the scriptures and of different people in the Bible who also experienced times of confusion and exile and we really focused in on one Peter and we said, uh, didn't we, as we looked at 1 Peter, we identified like three key things in 1 Peter that I think uh, we can hold on to in, in our day and age today. And the first was that we need to identify ourselves within the context of a Bible-believing church. Okay, uh, Once you were not a people, now you are a people, uh, 1 Peter 2.10. We are marked out and identified as, as God's people. So in order to survive in exile times, we need to be part of a Bible-believing church as God's people together. And secondly, in that uh, Bible-believing church, we want to hear the message of Jesus Christ, our hope. We're born again into a living hope, uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 1 uh, and verse 2. So we must resign and radiate uh, with that hope, that joy, uh, that great gospel uh, fruitfulness. And then correspondingly, thirdly, we live lives of holiness, don't we? As we commend the gospel and authenticate the gospel, if you like, by the Spirit working through the word, apply to our lives as we witness to other people. Now, what I want to do tonight is think a little bit about prayer in, uh, in our day and age? How do we pray uh, around exile times? And what I don't want you to do is just to assume, because I come from Balamina, hey, that it's, it's, it's easy for us, you know, because we've got the great churches and uh, lots of Christians and evangelicals in Balamina. Uh, it's hard in Balamina too. It's exactly the same as, as it is here. It's really, really hard. Tim asked me maybe to share a little bit about my own church, my own context. Uh, I've been in my church 12 years, as I said last night, coming up 12 years. It's a housing estate. There are four kind of estates around my church. I'm right in the middle of the um, estate. Two estates were, were built in the late 60s, early 70s, and then again in the 80s. Um, they extended them. And, and these were council estates. Uh, Ballykill 1 uh, it was populated kind of by people who were from the area, maybe from the rural fringe, and they moved in to get jobs in uh, the newly built factories like Michelin, which just shut, of course. Um, and then Ballykill 2 attracted an awful lot of people maybe from the Shankill or from parts of Belfast during the Troubles. That was more kind of 1980s. And then we have Meadowvale and Knock Eden. They're both kind of private estates. So altogether, it's about 1,200 homes, something like that. Um, we suffered a lot of violence, suffered um, a lot of paramilitary activity during uh, the years. 
um, of, the, of the troubles mainly, of course, and drugs, drug addiction, and then obviously the presenting issues, um, the family breakup, and all, all of the usual social issues that are common throughout Northern Ireland. Uh, we've suffered from them uh, too. So that's very much the context into which you know, we're trying to expound the scriptures, um, trying to share the gospel. And our church is very much a community church. It's like a, it's like a hall with movable seats so we can play football in it or we can have a kids club uh, or we can have a conventional act of worship. So I really enjoy being there, as I said last night. But the interesting thing about where we are now is we're kind of being gentrified. Um, if you stand in my bedroom window and you look out the back of our manse, so we're in the church grounds, you look out the back, they're about to build or are building, actually, currently 200 new homes. And these are nice homes, semi-detached, detached, and bungalow homes. Really nice homes, competitively priced, if you're interested in moving to Balamina, okay? Very close to my church. So on Tuesday night, it's my wife's birthday, so I decide to go out and do some evangelism and then take my wife out for dinner. And we had some vouchers. So I... Balamina, hey... So I, I, th- I thought to myself, I'm looking out the window at these houses, and there's, there's probably 20 or so built, and then you know, the other um, several, you know, m- many more houses yet to be built. But it's a bit of a building site, but there's about 20 built. And about 12 or 15 families have moved in already. So I see these people walking their dogs and parking their cars. They've only been there a matter of weeks. I'm looking out my bedroom window, and I'm thinking I'll be in Dundonald most of the week, so I need to get round these houses quickly and invite them to church on Easter Sunday. So I, I, I mutter a few nervous prayers. Lord, just bless me now. I hope I have a few good conversations. I want to get out here and you know share the gospel. Hadn't done it in ages. So um, off I went, clutching a few leaflets, you know, advertising our Facebook page and how wonderful we are as a group of people, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, go out to the very first house, which is directly opposite where I live, you know, knock on the door, and guy opens the door. He's never seen me before in his life. I've never seen him. He's just sort of staring at me. That kind of weird silence, you know. Hi, I'm Marty. And immediately he's thinking, who on earth are you? You know, stranger shaking my hand. You're Mormon. You know, what is this? So he's shaking my hand. And I'm going, I'm Marty. I live in that house just over there. And, and you see that church? That's, that's my church. Love to see you come to my church. And he's looking at me as if to say, I, why would I ever go to your church? You strange man. And I said, it's, it's Easter on Sunday, and uh, uh, I, I would, I would uh, have you lived here long? We've only been there a matter of weeks. So I'm a nervous wreck. Nice weather. You know, have a leaflet. Bye! The first three houses are all like that. People just staring at me. Like, you know, I kind of assume that, you know, because I'm a minister, I'm in the local area, it would make some sort of sense to them that maybe, oh, it's the local church calling. They had no idea that there was a church there. They had no idea who I was. I felt really stupid and vulnerable and weak and faithless. And they're thinking, Sunday morning, I get a sleep in with a partner. Maybe the kids will lie in. Maybe I'll get nine holes of golf, or maybe I'll get 18 holes of golf. 
maybe we can do a bit of shopping. The last thing they're going to do is walk into a building where people are wearing suits, they're singing hymns, you know, that they've never heard before in their life, and they're talking from a book which is 2,000 years old. Mission's really hard, isn't it? Mission's really, really hard. So, I think Psalm 85 is a prayer. It's a prayer uh, for God's blessing to come. And I think it's a prayer which can really help us. If you, and there are probably lots of people here who feel like I do, it's just getting harder and harder and harder to witness as a Christian, Psalm 85 hopefully will encourage us. Now, the thing is about Psalm 85, it does start as a lament, but it moves to a place of blessing, as we'll see. And it's really a prayer that God would move amongst us with his felt presence, his blessing. And it's divided up into four different sections. Now, the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I'm not saying that the typesetters or kind of the sub-editors who put the Bible together were inspired. Um, because people lay the Bible out in different ways when they publish different versions of the Bible. But I have to say, the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I have here, has this um, set absolutely correctly in in four different blocks, uh, which we're going to look at. And the first block is in verses 1 to 3, which is all about God blessing his people in the past. That's where we start, isn't it? When we're struggling, when we are... You know, as I did the other night, really doubting whether the whole thing is, is, is true because you feel so small, don't you? Remember God has blessed us in the past. Now, we read verses 1 to 3 there. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. What I love about this psalm is the way that the agency of the Lord is described everywhere. This is a psalm entirely about what God is doing. Now, of course, there's a plea and a prayer which we'll come to in a minute, but this is a psalm which is so caught up with what God has done and what God will do. He's an active living God. He's a sovereign God. So it says here, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And what the psalmist is doing I think, as he's echoing back to the work of the Lord in forgiving the people of Moses' time. Exodus chapter 32, uh, Moses is receiving the commandments. Exodus chapter 34, um, uh, the people have you know, worshipped a false god, a, a golden calf, a false idol. And, and, and Moses has to plead for the forgiveness of the people that their iniquity would be covered over. And that language is echoed here in Psalm 85 verses 1 to 3. But the other thing about Psalm 85 verses 1 to 3 is it, it situates the blessing of God in the kind of present of the psalmist's writing, I think. Because I think, now some people dispute this, but I think Psalm 85 sits as a piece of Psalm 84. And I think what we're doing here as we look at Psalm 84, for example, as partner Psalm, is we're describing how God has forgiven the people and brought them back from exile in Babylon. Of course, you know the story. People of God, especially the monarchy of God, were faithless. And the Uh, The Israelites were gobbled up by the Assyrians and that last faithful tribe of Judah were gobbled up 500 years, 600 years before Christ, you know, taken off to to Persia or to Babylonia. And then King Cyrus, and we read about him in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, he is moved to 
to allow the people to come back to worship in Jerusalem. And that should tell you a whole lot, actually, about how God is responsible and, and oversees and is sovereign over, you know, political people that we don't like. But we're not, we're not going to go there tonight, okay? But God is working in the life of Cyrus, the allows Ezra, the Nehemiah, of course, under Artaxerxes, to allow the people to come back. And as they come back, they get back to Jerusalem. They're thanking God for his forgiveness. They're thanking God for his past blessing. And they're, and they're singing, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and faints in the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh, they're singing for joy. We're so happy we're back. But then we get to Psalm 85. It's kind of like the morning after the night before. And, 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 and Psalm 85 is this, is this plea. So God has done great work in the past. And we're thankful, Lord, for your work in the past. But we're in a situation at the minute which is, which is dire. So that moves us from the first section, which is thankfulness for blessing in the past, to the second section, which is a plea for God's future blessing. The psalmist prays, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. You know, you've been good to us, Lord, in the past. Through Moses, you've been good to us. Through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're, we're, we're back here. But, but we need you to work, Lord. And if you look, actually, again, the way this psalm is composed, verses 4 and 7 are kind of like, this is like a sandwich. They're the slices of bread, and you've got verses 5 to 6, the meat in the middle of the sandwich. So verse 4 and verse 7 of Psalm 85 are a plea for God to show his steadfast love and to save his people. And then in the middle, you've got um, three questions in the interrogative mood. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. The word revive there means give life. Will you not give life to us again, Lord? We need you, Lord. What I really notice about this prayer is that, that sense of tension in the prayer I wonder if you ever pray like that. Lord, will you save my mother? Or will you save my husband? Or will you, will you do it? And then we kind of give up. You don't think God's going to answer that prayer. So there's a story. Uh, people here uh, are far uh, uh, more adept or reading church history than me will, will maybe know who I'm talking about. But I um, came across a story there in the last year of Martin Luther and Luther, Luther had a colleague in the Reformation in Germany, the 1520s, I think it was, who, who was gravely ill. This is one of his right-hand men. He was on his deathbed. And Luther prayed to God. He said this, Lord, I need you to heal this man. And Lord, I need him for ministry. And Lord, I want you to heal him. And Lord, I want you to heal him so strongly that he lives longer than me. Do you know that story? And almost instantaneously, the man, his hearing came back, his, his eyesight came back. He, 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 he really was revived in health. He was healed and he came back and he came back strongly. And he served Luther's Reformation cause, and he lived six months longer than Martin Luther. So I think you can pray prayers like that. 
I mean, God is sovereign, and he will answer them in his own way. But I, I knew, I met someone who prayed for a satellite. Have you ever prayed for a satellite before? I, you never know. It's people in Dundonald, I don't know. This guy was, he was in a mission agency in Orlando in Florida, and he was talking about his work, and they really wanted to pump some um, you know, evangelical doctrine into the church in Indonesia. So they prayed that they would get a satellite up so they could beam all of this stuff into Indonesia. And lo and behold, the Lord provided. I don't know how. They got a satellite. They were able to broadcast. It's quite a well-known ministry, broadcasting uh, Reformed theology into the Indonesian um, continent. Now, of course, whenever we implore the Lord or exhort the Lord, uh, as, as the psalmist is doing here, you know, pleading for revival, we've, we've got to acknowledge that there's much suffering in there. And of course, um, this, is, uh, this was the home of Helen Rosevear, and you've read Helen's books, and such an inspiration. She suffered so much, and yet she saw great answers to, to prayer too, didn't she? Will you not revive us again, Lord? Sometimes, you know, as I said last night, when the pressure's on, God really teaches us to get on our knees and to see him work in amazing ways. Okay? So let that be an encouragement for you, whatever you're praying for tonight. God can deliver. So blessing remembered in the past. We're so thankful, aren't we, for God's grace to us in the past for saving us and blessing us through Jesus Christ. Blessing anticipated and prayed for in the future. Will you not revive us again? We can ask that the Lord will work powerfully in the future. And then we have this third section, which is blessing awaited. Now, what happens here is it's a kind of a Pentecostal moment. And and, and one of the sons of Korah, we don't know who they are, they're they're like the praise team, the worship team. He, he, He goes from the plural to the singular. He goes, shh. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So he's waiting. And I, I, think, I think this is the sense here, this mysterious kind of verse, verse 8. I think the sense is that the psalmist is calling the church to wait. He said, you know, you've prayed that the Lord will show us steadfast love. And you've prayed that he will revive us. Let's wait and see what he will say. And I think there's a couple of things here, isn't there? I think, I think patience is going to be recognized here. And we'll, we'll maybe think about that a little bit more in a minute. But... but what I think is really important here is to recognize that God is speaking to his church. You know, in general revelation, God will speak to the world, you know, through creation or through our conscience or through common grace, culture and sport and life and all, all sorts of ways God can speak to people. But he speaks his word to the church. And that was the content of our prayer meeting earlier on and, and last night too. So encouraging to be the preacher, knowing that people are praying for God to speak his word. And that's what he's doing. The psalmist here recognizes that, that it's to the church, to the saints, God will speak. And what will he speak? He will speak shalom. Nobody else 
But the church receives the word of God in such a way, that sense of peace, that sense of wholeness, that sense of oneness with them. What a word again to a a church which is you know, disrupted and a, a church which is hurting and a church which is lamenting the state of things and a church which needs to see revival. God says, wait and have peace. But as we wait for the Lord to, to, to bring life into different situations and into our homes and our churches and into our culture, what we must do is be patient as we wait for his word and let us not turn back to folly, says the psalmist. Of course, so often it is the case, isn't it? Whenever the circumstances are hard, people want to give up. And they want to fall away. I was asked this question last night. Somebody said, you know, are you encouraged in Ballykill? I said, yes, I am encouraged. But, you know, I've seen, I've seen the Lord work in people's lives. I've seen people converted in, in really radical ways, deeply encouraging. But what is discouraging is when sometimes the pressure comes on in life, those people who were such a spark kind of dim a bit. And they turn to folly. And that's heartbreaking for a pastor. And so there's, again, an exhortation here for people to be patient and not to turn back to folly. And again, an encouragement. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. The psalmist is saying here to the church, you know, God is closer than you think. So hold him in reverent awe. Have respect and a holy love and passion and reverence for the Lord. So that glory may dwell in our land. You know, sometimes um, a verse, you know, could be read without the full import really being taken in and understood. This is an extraordinary verse of scripture here at the end of verse 9 because it acts as a kind of bridge into uh, the next section, which we'll look at in a second. But let's just tease out what verse 9 means because this is a powerful verse He's praying that glory may dwell in our land, that glory may come. What is glory? Glory is the kabod, as it says in Hebrew, the weight of God, the very presence of God. And again, last night I spoke of Leviticus, and again, there's a sense of the presence of the Lord in a chapter like Leviticus chapter 9, or we know those chapters in Exodus, you know, where the Lord's glory is present in the fire of the tent. And then, of course, the Lord's glory in the temple later on with Solomon and the, and the smoke and just the radiance of the whole thing, the holy glory of it, the weight of God, the presence of God. And the psalmist is anticipating as we pray and as we wait that the, the, the very weight and the very presence of the Lord will dwell in the land. So the dwelling of the Lord happens as a result of mediators. You know, sinful people, God cannot just dwell with sinful Israel. Something has to happen as a kind of a a mediation. There has to be a mediator. There has to be a, a prophet to bring the word. There has to be a king to rule God's law amongst the people. And there has to be a priest to offer sacrifice. Again, that language of um, Leviticus is there in, in Psalm 85 verse 2. You forgive the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. The sin of the people has to be covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb or the, or the bull. So, so this has to happen in order for the Lord's glory to dwell. There has to be a prophet and a priest and a king 
And the, and the psalmist is asking that this glory may dwell in the land. Heretz. The word doesn't just mean like the earth. It means here and now, amongst us, amongst our being. The psalmist is praying for Jesus. Whether he realizes that or not, I don't know. But he's praying for Jesus to come. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now again, I'm no high academic at all. I've forgotten most of what I was taught. I'm quite sure you read your Greek every day, Tim Anderson, do you? Do you, Richard? No, no. thank you, brother. <laughs> but again, when I sat, we, we sat and did uh, Greek. Uh, my, my good brother, where is he, Richard McElhatton, he's here tonight. Uh, Richard and I were in Greek classes uh, together in Union College. And the best thing about our, our Greek classes, they were actually over in um, the Methodist College, Edge Hill College. And um, the best thing about the Greek classes was the scones. The wee Methodist people were absolutely brilliant bakers. And we had these scones, these lovely fruit scones. And for about the best part of, I don't know, two, the best part of the term, we just thought they were free. Didn't we? And, and at break time, we'd had, we'd had like an hour of, of Reverend Derek McKelvey and his Greek. And it was, oh, this is hard work. So we went down and helped ourselves to the scones and the cup of tea. And of course, two-thirds of the way through the term, the wee Methodist woman came out and she said, gee, by the way, boys, do you realize you have to pay for those scones? But, <laughs> Balamina, hey? You know? So, back in the Greek class, we're going through John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the word for dwelt among us, pistuosin, uh, tabernacled. The word became flesh and pitched his tent amongst us, you could translate it as. So there's this sense that the glory of the Lord that came to the people in the tent, the glory of the Lord that came to the people in the tabernacle, and, and then in the temple, that this glory is on its way. The glory is going to come to the land. And it has come in the land in the form of Jesus Christ. So again, that's what I'm saying about Psalm 85 and verse 9. It's a picture of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst the people. And that's why the last section of the psalm is about blessing experience. So this, 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 this prayer of Psalm 85 is a prayer, blessing remembered in the past, blessing requested for the future, blessing awaited. And in the waiting, can't you see how the psalmist is moving from lament to thanksgiving and anticipation? And, and, and then we see blessing experienced in verses 10 to 13 at the end. And what I love about this is it's a little bit like the prophecies. You know when you read like Isaiah 52, 53, um, the, the, the prophet Isaiah is writing obviously hundreds of years before the death of, of the lamb, the suffering servant, but he's, he's so convinced it's going to happen, he's written it in the past tense. And I think that's the sense here. The psalmist is so confident, he's so convinced that the Lord will realize what's happening. He writes in the past tense. It's, it's happened. It's happening even. So again, this is like a neat little psalm within the psalm. Um, verse 10 and verse 13 belong together. They're like the two slices of bread and the meat is in the middle, verses 11 to 12. 
So verse 10 and verse 13 are, if I could use the term, magical. They're just amazing verses because what they do is they describe the personal activity of what's going on here. God is going to undertake to bless the people in a personal way because steadfast love and faithfulness will meet and righteousness and peace will kiss each other and righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. It's a picture of God walking into the life of the church and blessing the church. And he's going to bless the church with steadfast love and faithfulness. Now again, whenever you look at... um, at, at, the, at these terms, quite often throughout Scripture, steadfast love and faithfulness belong together. It's a kind of a description of the covenant love of the Lord, the Hesed love of the Lord, the kind of love of the Lord which is entirely from Him. An inner sin, an inner waywardness, an inner confusion grips us and holds us. And you'll see it just over the page. For example, I'll just give you one reference, Psalm 89 and, and verse 19. Sorry, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Isn't that beautiful? So often, steadfast love and faithfulness uh, belong together. It's interesting, actually, if you go to Psalm uh, 26, you'll see David says, Psalm 26, verse 3, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So David undertakes to walk in the faithfulness. But here back in Psalm 85, it's the Lord who's walking. It's the Lord who's making his footsteps away. God is undertaking to bring blessing to the church. And again, this is anticipating the work of Jesus Christ. Then in the middle, of course, the product of the Lord's work. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. This is a picture of Eden restored, maybe of a new creation, of God looking down Righteousness looking down, the Holy Spirit emerging as a stream, irrigating the cursed ground, reversing the curse, bringing fertile, lucid, beautiful pictures of, of translucent, beautiful pictures of growth and of, of um, a new creation, and the Lord giving what is, what is good, and our land will yield its increase. It's a picture of blessing coming to the people, and this blessing overflowing as God does what man cannot do. Now what I want to do actually is just for a couple of, just a couple of minutes if I may, be a little bit cheeky and dip into uh, Matthew's gospel. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 15 and I'll tell you why. I want you to see how Psalm 85 is answered by Jesus. And the reason why I'm being a wee bit cheeky is because I said I'd preach on this tomorrow night, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you kind of the, the, um, the prologue. I'm going to preach on something slightly different tomorrow night because I really want to um, frame 
uh, the gospel um, message to people who aren't Christians. And I want to really hammer home that message uh, that the gospel is about sinners coming home to God. So I want to look at the prodigal son tomorrow night, okay? If that's okay. Is that all right? Thank you, Father Anderson. Um, <laughs> I shall get in such trouble, you know, because you printed it on your flyers and stuff. But no, here's, here's why I did want to talk about Matthew chapter 15. Look at, look at verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, you've got to understand, he's already done the miracle of feeding thousands of people, and he's done it within a Jewish context. He's about to repeat that miracle in front of the disciples so that they know all the promises of blessing coming in Psalm 85, and all the promises of the law and the prophets are about to come true in the Messiah. This time, he's going to do another miracle amongst Gentile people, Canaanite people, different people. And he has compassion on that crowd, And they've been with him three days. They've nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Daft question. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them. Again, the Greek, give thanks, Eucharistasis, Eucharist. The Lord's about to have communion with these people. And the breaking of the bread is a picture as he gives thanks to his Father in heaven. He's breaking the bread. It's a picture of his being broken for the people in love and compassion, isn't it? So that sinners can dine with the living Lord. But look what happens. He gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And he took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, I haven't got time to unpack all of this. I just want to say they ate and were satisfied. This is a picture of the increase in Psalm 85. This is a picture of the overflow. This is a picture of what God wants to do in bringing blessing. And entirely the agency of this is Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now, how does this help us pray? I'm greatly influenced uh, by a man called Jack Miller. Uh, he went to glory in 1996 uh, when I became a Christian. And the great thing about Jack Miller is his emphasis on repentance. Um, he was a Presbyterian minister in the United States of America, and he was greatly annoyed in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, he was a professor of theology, and he was a part-time pastor in a small kind of independent church and he um, was greatly annoyed about the fact nobody was at the prayer meeting nobody was praying for revival nobody was praying for blessing people had kind of lost their faith and he got really angry with people shaking the fists and then it dawned on him his prayer life was terrible and he went back into the prayer meeting so the few souls there, and he repented. He repented to the church. And he rediscovered his justification by faith. He was justified by faith in Jesus. You know, he didn't have to have. You know, he, he, he wanted the adulation uh, and respect of people. He wanted people to see that the prayer meeting was busy, that the church was full. 
And he was scared when things didn't work out. And he wanted to impress people. He had a fear of man. And he began to repent of all of this. And uh, guess what? Prayer meeting grew. Congregation grew. Church was packed. And he developed a ministry out of this and a mission out of this. And one of his disciples was a man named Tim Keller. You may have heard of him. So that brings me back to Psalm 85 and an acknowledgement of my sin and my need to repent. You know, the problem is, I knew God saves people through his word. And I knew, I've got all the theology, I've got it in here, and I've got it in, you know, I, I preach to a church, I feel comfortable, but when I have to step outside and I stand on somebody's door and I try to say to them, well, oh, come to my church, and then I kind of melt away in fear, I actually have to repent. Firstly, because I didn't, I, I just mumbled a prayer before I went out to knock on the doors. I didn't pray a believing prayer. You know, God's calling us to believe. God's calling us to you know, exhort him to revive the church. God is calling us to have faith and, and to be filled with the spirit, to be filled with the gospel, and not to be scared of other people, but to genuinely believe that he will bring blessing in our broken times and into our broken lives. But the power of it comes when we acknowledge our weakness and when we repent and we experience personal renewal. And you know, because we are forgetful people, he reminds us of the gospel, doesn't he? All the time. The Lord will bless us. The Lord will help us. You know, said Jack Nicholas, whenever um, he, uh, he, he started the, you know, the PGA Tour each year, he, he went down to Florida to, to his original coach, and he said to his original coach, teach me how to play golf. I don't know if anybody here plays golf, but Jack Nicklaus was the greatest of golfers. You would never have thought that he would have had cause to go down and say to his coach you know, from when he was young, teach me, how, teach me how to start again, teach me how to play golf. But he had to be reminded of what it was all about. And that's why he was so blessed in golfing. We have the Lord's Day, we have the preached word, and we have the Lord's table. The Lord is reminding us you're a sinner. I've died for you. You need me. You need me. You need me. So with that in mind, let's come before the Lord now in prayer. Father, Father, please will you forgive us for our weakness. And we thank you so much, Lord, for blessing us in the past through Jesus Christ. Help us to pray prayers of faith that you will bless us again and help us as we wait Lord God for you to speak into our lives and to change us and shape us we pray that we would be more holy and have a reverent fear of you and may we delight Lord God in the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit through the church through the word through the bread and wine as you bless us in the meantime. And Father, tonight, if there's anybody here who is pained in prayer about any particular issue, we pray that you would specifically strengthen them because we can pray confidently in Jesus' name. Amen.